namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Aparuta de Sangamatasatawara ye Sodavantabamunjantu Satang. So this evening is uh, Asala Puja, the full moon of July, and uh, tomorrow the uh, traditional entering of the Vasa Pansa. And of course, this is the this is, uh, we chant the Tamajaka Pavatana Sutta, especially on this day, because this is supposedly the time that was chanted the first time in, in uh, Saranath in India by the Buddha 2,553 years ago. And so last year I was in Varanasi, and uh, had the opportunity to chant the Tamajaka Pavantana Sutta at Saranath. It's quite moving actually when you're sitting there chanting this for the first ser- sermon after the Buddha's enlightenment. This is a, the, what the whole tradition is based on. This, this is the essential teaching. And uh, chanting it in the place that it was first given. There's something very powerful about it. And Saranath is quite a marvelous place in its own right. It's one of the sacred sites, uh, just a few miles out of uh, Benares or Varanasi. <coughs> so this this is like my actually 44th Vasa. And then I was um, Samanera for a year, so that was uh, when I first really started <coughs> reflecting on this particular sutta. <coughs> and it's the year I spent as a Samanera before I met Ajahn Chah, living in uh, Wat Nhon Prao in Nong Kai. And I took this uh, sutta as my teacher because at that time I didn't have any teacher. I just had a book and tried to put this into practice to internalize it, uh, to make it work, in other words, because uh, having studied uh, so much Buddhist literature before, when I was a lay person, I, I knew a lot about Buddhism but didn't have any insight, then practiced it. So then this was uh, a chance, you know, just to, on, a, on an impulse, really, to, to try to make it work, see if I could do it. Uh, and, of course, when you're alone with yourself for a year, you do have uh, this sense of not there's nothing else to do. I deliberately arranged it so that that I would... Do you mind? 
So anyway, this um, year was dedicated to at least trying to get some direct experience into into this uh, teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And of course, when you're living alone with yourself, uh, it, it might sound like uh, it would be peaceful, but actually it was a period of great uh, tension and difficulty because... Uh, I'd never been with myself for so long a time without any distraction. There, there was no electricity in the monastery. There was no nobody to talk to. I only took one book, this little pamphlet uh, of Jnanati Loka, the Four Noble Truths, and therefore, and I deliberately, intentionally limited myself to this one book, which is. A, a kind of synopsis or a succinct version of this particular, based on this teaching of the Four Noble Truths. So, uh, it started out 45 years ago with this particular teaching, then, then applying it through 45 years, of course, it is something that uh, has a tremendous power in its own right because it uh, it is based on the reality of our human experience it's not a, not a kind of metaphysical teaching or a philosophical one it's not about the intellect or the or uh, speculating about the nature of existence it's a very down-to-earth basic pointing at at this uh, experience that we can all recognize very easily, such as Dukkha, the first noble truth. And this is a kind of unique approach of that that makes Buddhism so unique in the in the pantheon of religions of conventional religions, because it you know there's usually religion emphasizes uh, belief in in a metaphysical reality or metaphysical truths uh, which the average person may only speculate about. Maybe we don't have direct knowledge of God or the ultimate reality uh, or we have, we're so involved with our own fears and desires and conditioning that we we can't see beyond it. We just we believe what other people tell us, or what we're supposed to believe, out of fear, maybe out of convention. But the, we don't really know for sure. And so this this teaching of the Four Noble Truths is is uh, t- inviting us to find out, to really awaken to reality itself and and see it, taste it, know it for, in a direct way, not to just believe in, in, in uh, something that we can only doubt or, or have to believe in without really understanding it or knowing it in a direct, practical way. 
Now, I believe all religions point at the same goal, which is liberation, freedom from delusion, freedom from suffering, whether you call it salvation or enlightenment or the different concepts that people use in different religions. But it means, you know, that uh, pointing to something beyond just the limitation that we find ourselves in uh, as a human being living on a planet in which we're always subjected to its changing conditions. And, and you contemplate your own experience of life, it's all about feeling, isn't it? From the day you're born to the day the body dies, it's the, it's the unrelenting experience of feeling, this continuous feeling of, uh, uh, through the body, through the senses. And, and so this is a sense realm uh, to, to um, make an obvious statement. We're experiencing sense consciousness through the senses. And so we're, we're in this continuous state of feeling. And uh, just to point this out, because even though this is so obvious when pointed out, we don't sometimes really understand it. We don't, we, we're so busy caught up in trying to avoid pain or find happiness or get something, uh, you know, practice something to attain some special state or to believe in something that will hopefully, that hopefully save us from suffering, sickness and death. Or maybe just on a material level to spend our lives just seeking money and comfort and power and privilege. Uh, to have the sense of security uh, from the condition level of being somebody uh, recognized as powerful and wealthy is one way people use to uh, get away from the, the fear of death or the relentless sensitivity that we're subjected to from birth to death. And of course as you grow older, such a, in my age, you're, you're, um, you experience a lot more discomfort, at least I do, than I did when I was younger. Physical, in other words. And, uh, and this is, of course, seen in terms of, uh, you know, in, in the terms of noble truth, it's a result of having been born, you know, because birth means that we're born into this human body and it has to grow up and get old and die, and that's, it's, that's what it's supposed to do. So, now I'm on the, the downhill slide to the grave. <laughs> and this might sound morbid, but it isn't really. It's, it's just recognizing the fact that tomorrow's my birthday, 76 years old, and I know some of you are going to say, oh, you're not old. Lung <laughs> But don't say that. I don't like to hear that. <laughs> I am old. And I want to be old. And I contemplate. It's part of the program. It's not something I resent or dread, but I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying old age. And because I'm looking at it not from the vanity level of, of my ego. My ego, of course, 
the sense of myself, what's the value, you know, the sense of personal worth, personal attraction, and so forth is developed when you're young. So, you know, it's important to, and in a modern society like this one, you're, you are very much, it's a society based on trying to preserve youth and be healthy and good looking and, and, uh, intelligent and charming and successful and all the useful side of life. But when you get on the downhill slide, on the Bhattiloma side of life, then this is called Bhattiloma in Paticca Samupada. And this, uh, this means that one appreciates the aging process one can begin to uh, use it. You know, it's a part of one's experience. And so this first noble truth, dukkha, is, uh, is, a, is just a fact of, uh, that this realm presents us with. It's nobody's fault. You can't blame it on anybody. It's not that, you know, I used to, when I was a Christian, used to blame it on God, think it's your fault. You made us, and you did a lousy job. You should, <laughs> you should make life so that I don't experience suffering. But um, in this way, you're not blaming it, but you're using this as a first noble truth. The aging process, sickness, loss, disease, uh, separation from the love, failure, all the, the experiences that we all are part of our lives as human individuals, which we none of us want. You know, we don't we don't like that side of life. And we fear it. We're afraid of it. <clears throat> and of course, fear is this realm. This is a fear realm that we're living in, because this realm is about death. And when you're when you're born, that that's the cause of death. Birth and death, they go together. And birth, we're experiencing the result of birth right at this very moment, the very breathing that you're doing. The, 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 the breathing in, breathing out of your own body, the feeling, physical feeling of pleasure, pain, heat or cold that you're experiencing now is the result of birth. It's not anybody's fault, is it? It's just the way it is. And then, uh, then, we have our own, we're conditioned after we're born to, to develop a sense of separateness. We're identified with our, what we look like, uh, with our race, nationality, gender, uh, class, social position, what we look like, you know, whether we, we think we're attractive, unattractive, whether we're black or white or whatever. We, we create this sense of a separate self. So this separateness is a creation <clears throat> out of ignorance, out of not understanding ultimate reality. We tend to create uh, an illusory realm that we participate in and we experience, and the result of that experience is dukkha. Because we don't understand dukkha, we just don't want it or we avoid it or we dismiss it or we can spend our lives looking for happiness and security, safety 
in all the good, the good things that we long for. Now the second noble truth is, uh, you know, gives us very clear uh, statement of the causes of suffering. So I'm just pointing out what a precise teaching this really is. It's not airy-fairy, speculative, uh, um, it's not just maybes or buts or possibilities, it's given very clear direction and how, what to, to acknowledge suffering and then to to let go of the causes of it. Because the Buddha is not making suffering an ultimate truth. When we talk about ultimate reality, ultimate reality, ultimate truth is one thing. But this is a noble truth. So there's a difference between noble and ultimate, isn't there? <laughs> At least this, I'm, I'm that this is how I relate to these words. The noble truth is not ultimate truth. But it's noble because when we begin to look at suffering, acknowledge it and understand it, that takes a certain nobility of the human being, of the human individual. And then we have to give up and uh, our own habits of running around looking for security, happiness, safety, and all the rest, to look at suffering, understand it, feel it, taste it. And then you, and, and that takes a noble heart. That means you, you start, you, you, you stop this running about, trying to, to get away from it by understanding it, by noticing, investigating. Now this is, when you really contemplate this, and, and you, not just intellectually, but apply it to life itself as we experience it, because suffering is, is everywhere. It's the nature of things. Wherever you go, people are suffering. In monasteries they suffer, in London they suffer, in Ottawa they suffer, Toronto, found nothing but suffering on the train, going from Toronto to Vancouver, suffering. Winnipeg suffers. Edmonton, Jasper, Kamloops, Vancouver, BC, Vancouver, Washington, and Seattle, <laughs> and Portland. <laughs> that, was the, that was the journey. <laughs> Even though it was a very pleasant journey, I mean, it was, it was uh, people ask me, what was it like, you know, there's two months of fun, really. Najan Panyasar, <laughs> we had two months of fun, just traveling with very nice people, meeting very nice people, going to a very, because North America in June, July is beautiful. And so, uh, and you're traveling in very beautiful places in Michigan and Niagara Falls and, uh, and of course Canada, Ontario, all that area in the springtime. It's very green, very beautiful. But even having fun, you know, is, is not, you know, if one just does these, uh, goes on these journeys just for fun, 
it's still suffering because suffering is the very nature of things of coming and going, meeting and separating, all the 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 details of life that one has to do when you're when you're living, you know, going sleeping in a different place every night. You know, I still haven't quite realized I'm back at Amravati. If I look a bit spaced out and not all here, it's called jet lag. <laughs> so I, we've been on the move, you know, continuously. The center of people's attention, wherever you go. Uh, and, uh, and it's all been very pleasant. But then the body has its limitations and and, uh, you know, you can only make it, you know, obey you to a certain level and then it has to, it has to rebel against your commands. And so, just noticing this, being aware of fatigue and tiredness and, and uh, these kind of events that happen when you're on a journey, where you're coming, you're meeting and separating from people, very good people all the time, very pleasant places. And it's always coming together and separating. So this is another reflection on the way things are. What comes together must separate. And I've done this for so many years just because I, you know, in my life I'm always coming and then going. And then coming back and then going away. <laughs> And, and so I made this a practice just to contemplate the feeling of, of separating from the loved and, and then meeting uh, people that, you know, because you go on invitations and people are eager to see you and so forth. So you're meeting with pe very nice people that, that love you, that want you to be there. And it's like this. And then you you're there for a while and then you have to separate and it's like this. And so this is what I call reflection on the way things are. So even when you're having two months of fun, there's this, uh, this two, two months of almost continuous meeting and separating. And so this is like applying the events of one's life to these Four Noble Truths. You know, so I'm not, when I go, go on these journeys, I'm not just giving up meditating or practicing. I'm, I'm not enjoying on it like a tourist, just to have a good time. But it is a, it, it taking this, this Four Noble Truths with me wherever I go. Because now it's internalized inside me. It's the way I see life now because I've, I've used it for so many years. It's not just a nice thing you chant in Pali on a sala puja night, or is it just, uh, you know, worship because it's the first sermon of the Buddha and, and we consider it sacred. But it actually, you know, gives you very clear directions on how to apply it to suffering as you experience it, life as you experience it, uh, uh, you know, to happiness and and fun and pleasure, because they're always into coming and going. You can't sustain fun and happiness and pleasurable sensory experiences. They're unsustainable because their very nature is change.
So in, you know, I determined many years ago to uh, use this particular teaching for, for my practice. Because the, the year when I was a Samanera, I, I had so much insight from it. The following year, I took the bhikkhu ordination, Upasambada, in Nongkai, and then I went to stay with Lungpong Cha in Ubon. And, uh, and so I told him what I'd learned, what I'd been practicing, and he encouraged me to continue. And of course, I found a great affinity with Ajahn Cha, Lungpong Cha, because this was the teaching he used all the time. This is what I, you know, I, first I, you know, because of the language difficulty I had, since I couldn't speak the language, but this is, you know, I began to understand that this is exactly what Lungpa Chop uses as his basic text, as his way of pointing. And so in my uh, early life, first year living in, with Lungpa Cha in Uborn, where I couldn't speak the language, I, you know, I was trying to adapt myself to uh, a totally different environment than I'd ever lived in, you know, to tropical weather and different food and very contained, strict Vinaya practices, different cultural attitudes. So you're kind of, it's like jumping into the middle of the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> I survived it, <laughs> obviously. But the, it was uh, because of this teaching of the Four Noble Truths. If it was up to my ego to decide, I don't know if I, my ego is very sensitive and weak. You know, it's not, a, I don't have a, Ego that is, you know, it's a pretty sloppy ego actually. Uh, so it, it, it doesn't have, it's kind of weak and cowardly and can't do it and self disparaging type of ego. So, you know, the, so if, if it just depended on how my feelings and my impersonal emotional reactions, I couldn't have taken it, you know, I think I would have given up. But because of this, this insight, this determination, a kind of trust, or in Pali they use the word sada, which is translated sometimes as faith or trust or confidence. Something in me that transcended the ego that wasn't the ego. And this I call the intuition. Intuition is, when I use this word, it means that consciousness that is, isn't, you're not operating through conditioning, through perception. So you're, you know, you're, there's a kind of, what you might call universal intelligence. It's a discerning ability, and it, and it's, all of us have it, you know, it's not, not just a, is not for special individuals. And so our human humanity, you know, this ability as a human being, we can actually uh, tune in to this higher level that transcends 
the thinking mind, the emotions, the ego, and, and the conditioned realm. And so this is, uh, the, the point of these Four Noble Truths, to first point to something so banal, so ordinary, so mundane as suffering. Because it's not, you know, nothing esoteric, subtle, or about suffering. We all can relate to that as, as part of our experience of life. And taking something on that, on something so obvious, and then using it to center ourselves, to examine, to investigate. We, and the only way we can ever really understand suffering is through the intuitive level. It's not about getting various definitions from dictionaries or scholars about the nature of suffering and what Buddha meant by suffering or dukkha or anything like that. It's, it's an intuitive recognition. It's called insight or jnana dasana, a, kind of a profound insight, wisdom knowledge that's available to us as human individuals. And so this is like this, and this Four Noble Truth teaching is a very skillful convention to use, to, to starting with something obvious like dukkha, its causes, take you to the reality of cessation of suffering. But you can't do it through the ego or through the thinking mind. It's not intellectual. It's not about, it's not, you know, something that you can, uh, somebody can do it for you. You've got, you know, it's like you have to do it yourself, find out for yourself. So during these years in in the UK, this is I think I, this is all I've been ever saying. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, this is my thirty fourth Vasa in the in in England. So I mean, it it does you know this is the whole point of of being here. Uh, you know, is to to bring this kind of uh, attention to a very profound teaching that can easily be dismissed even by Buddhists. You know, I used to be invited to the Buddhist society to give basic Buddhist teachings. They called Four Noble Truths basic Buddhism. And then basic always has like, it's, you know, for, it's like primary school. And so you have to get you have to get the basic teaching. Then you go on to the advanced course. <laughs> and, and, and even in Theravada Buddhism, which is really structured around this teaching, you find all kinds of teachers, uh, you know, giving you other things other than the, than the most profound teaching. They'll talk about the Visuddhimagga or the Abhidhamma or something like that rather than actually using the, the essential teaching, which is a lifetime experience. You know, something to use for your lifetime. It's not about 
well, you, I've done the Four Noble Truths, now I'm on to the higher program. Not <laughs> I finished Four Noble Truths years ago. <laughs> and now I'm, now I'm a, an advanced meditator into the higher realms of Buddhism. But for me, this is just my own expression anyway of uh, it's a it's a lifetime's examination, investigation. Everything that happens to us, everything includes everything. You know, praise and blame, success, failure, whatever. Physical experience, good health, bad health, disabilities, whatever an individual human being experiences, it's it's still the path, if we see it in terms of the noble truths. It's not, it, that's not an obstruction to the path. Old age is not an obstruction. Poverty, failure, blame, and all the rest is not an obstruction to the path. The obstructions are ignorance of the path. <laughs> and so this is, the path is what then? What are we talking about? Is there a real path? You can talk about the Eightfold Path, which is the four, Fourth Noble Truth. But these, you know, these are the best words can do. Words are limited. Language is limited. Pali language is limited. English translations are limited. It's just the limitation of language, because it isn't, you know, language is a synthetic, a kind of artificial creation. We make it up, and there's different languages, you know, so we have, you know, Thai and English and French and Chinese and all the different languages, but they're all created by human, by human beings. So that's why, uh, you know, cats and dogs can't speak English or Chinese, because they, they don't have that, the comma of a human being. So human beings, we have this language, which is a great gift, but it is limited. And it can take us so far. So we have the Bariyati Dhamma, or the, the essential teaching from the scriptures, like the Dhammajaka Pavatana Sutta, the, the, the Four Noble Truths, is, is, uh, is presented in scriptural form, and printed in Pali, and translated into English. And that's very, that's wonderful to have that teaching. Otherwise, if it, you know, who, who, how would we ever know about it if it hadn't been printed out? And of course, Sri Lanka is the place where it was actually printed. I mean, it wasn't written down for the first few hundred years. The Buddha didn't write anything. So it was like memory. The, the, the ability to wrote, memorize, and then it was eventually uh, through Pali uh, language preserved. The teaching were preserved as though you could print them in, on paper or palm leaves or whatever. It was available. So we can have this gratitude to Sri Lanka for having preserved the teaching in this scriptural form. 
Now we've got the internet, we've got, you know, everything is so easily available in, in terms of Buddhist literature in English. You don't need to learn other languages or Pali, Sanskrit, Tibetan, Chinese or anything else. Uh, it's all, you know, if English is the language you speak, then there's so much information and in libraries, in, on uh, internet programs and whatnot. So there's an abundance of available literature, Abhariyati Dhamma, courses in Pali, courses in Abhidhamma, courses in Buddhist studies, PhDs and so forth are offered in universities. This didn't exist 50 years ago. Nothing like this. When I first started, it was just, you could find, hardly find any book in English about Buddhism. So the Bariati Dhamma is, is a blessing to us. You know, so but, but the thing is that Bariati is only the, you know, is, is the source of information. It's inspiration. It can inspire us. It can give us some direction, some something to use. It's a pointing in a direction. And so this Tamajaka Sutta that we just chanted, that's Bariyate Dhamma, meaning it's, it's a intellectual, it's written down, it's from a scripture, from a book, from the Tripitaka. So then we have this, but then we we don't just worship this scripture or just chant it and, and pray to it or anything. We it's actually about applying it, bhati bhata. So this is the Pali word. In Thai they use the word itself. They say Bhattibhat in Thai means to practice, put into practice. So you have Bariati, which is the the uh, intellectual statement, the scripture, and then the bhati bhata, and then the bhati bhati weti, which is the result. Now this, this, this structure here is a reflective one, isn't it? You've got, you've got the statement, what to do about it, and the result from having done it. And that you have to look inside yourself to see the result. You know, you have to, See it for yourself. The result of bhati bhata is what? What is the result? And then some people say, I used to go ask Lung Po Cha, what is the result? He said, how should I know? You have to find out. You know, I wanted him, I thought he, I, I, when I first met him, I thought, he knows me better than I do. So he knows what I need, so he knows where I'm at. So every time I get confused, I'll just go see him and he'll tell me. And then I'm projecting, that's the ego I have. The ego says, I can't do it. I'm, you know, I'm just a hopeless, ignorant American. Lung Po Cha is wise, sage, and he will direct me. So, and that, that was all right for the beginning. But Ajahn Chah's brilliance was that he would never let, let me get away with that perception. <laughs> so this is like direct pointing when, no matter how I, what I projected onto him, my own perceptions and judgments onto, 
on to Lumpur Cha, he always point back at me, you know, to get me to see what I'm doing. And that's butty weight to be able to just recognize. It's like this. My desire to, because I could see, I, I, I didn't trust myself. I trusted Ajahn Chah. I created. He's wise. I'm. I'm not. I created that. Lumpur Chah never said that to me. Nobody else said it to me. So I must have made it up myself. That whole scenario. I'm the ignorant one, he's the wise one, he knows what I need. And Ajahn Chah could, you know, just not, not through any drastic means, but through humor, he had a great sense of humor, and through compassion, he could get me to see what I was doing. And so this was a very direct teaching because it, you know, at the time I couldn't understand the language, so there was nothing much to talk about. You know, he's speaking Thai and my speaking English. Uh, so the, the language we didn't have in common for the first year. But Lung Po Cha always called it Dhamma language when people would ask him, how can he teach a Farang, a Western monk, when they don't have a, when he can't speak Thai? Ajahn Chah couldn't speak English. What a language? And he said, Dhamma language. So this is Dhamma language, which is a direct pointing at these Four Noble Truths. Four Noble Truths apply to all of us. It's not about Thais or Americans or anything like that. It's about the way things are for human beings. It's not about, you know, uh, adopting some exotic religion from India. Uh, you know, and, and trying to be, act like, uh, you know, change the costume and believe in uh, Indian philosophy. But it's, it's the reason why there's so much interest now in the teaching of the Buddha in the West is because it resonates with us. You know, with all our affluence and security and privilege in the countries like this, there's still so much dukkha, suffering. You know, you think, you know, we've got, we live very privileged lives here in, in England. When you, when you hear what's happening in the rest of the world, you're reading The Guardian the other day, and just the headlines, you know, the, 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 the large print, I couldn't bother to read the, what was underneath, but they were all so depressing about famine and drought and war and starvation <laughs> and corruption and deception, adultery, sex scandals, <laughs> on and on like that. That was, <laughs> you know, just this uh, sense of in, in, you know, in the planet now, you know, we live in a, in a in a affluent society, politically stable, and yet we suffer. Compared to say, other places that are really poor, and people never get a, a decent amount of food to eat, where children are, you know, have to scrounge around on garbage dumps, refuse just to find anything to sell or eat. 
and yet we suffer. Whether you're in Winnipeg or Edmonton, <laughs> London or Seattle. <clears throat> We suffer in Amravati, don't we? People, monks and nuns manage to suffer a lot here. <laughs> because that's the very nature of this realm, you know, the, the, is suffering, dukkha. And then the direct pointing is not to try to get rid of it, but to use it for seeing the causes. What are the causes of suffering? And through investigating the causes, you let go of them and then you begin to have the insight into the cessation of suffering. It's like this. So it's immediate. You know, it's not about, you know, the cessation of suffering isn't because I've been practicing for so many years. It's just learning to trust it. You know, it's like over the years, in, in this living as a Buddhist monk, uh, my trust and faith in the end of suffering is very powerful now. Where in the beginning, you know, when I first had insight, uh, the, the, the whole karma of my life was so strong, you know, my emotional habits, my ego, uh, the sense of myself was so overwhelmingly powerful, it seemed hopeless. It seemed like a hopeless task, the Buddha was asking. I did have an insight into cessation of suffering, but on an emotional level, I couldn't see, you know, I, I felt it was impossible. But in spite of what my emotions told me, there's something above that emotion that didn't really believe it. And that's the, like intuitive awareness. Why do you stay here when you suffer? Why, why do you pursue this life of renunciation, monastic form, in this tradition? And, and, and why, what is it that keeps you here? You know, so then you you, know, t you don't think about it, but the, you know, the ego will make all kinds of justifications or, uh, in, about it. But it's because uh, uh, as you trust this intuitive awareness, mindfulness, this is what, this is what sustains us. This is the path. This, this, this we can actually develop and cultivate. A bhavana, in other words. In, in this life, the remaining life that we have within this human body. So it's an opportunity. Now I found the monastic form one that is incredibly helpful to cultivate this path. It's not an end in itself, you know, it's not to be, not to, you know, it's not going to get you out of suffering. Or shaving your head and putting on a, 
Rome. He's not going to be transformed out of misery into eternal joy. But it is, you know, it's a, it's a convention, it's a visual form, it's a conventional form that contains us and we, we learn to live within it. And, and, you know, the aim is not to make it into a problem but to surrender to it so that we, you know, we're not quibbling about it anymore. We're just, this is what, this is how we live uh, on the, through this convention. And then we can actually watch our own emotional, uh, personal reactions to, to the forms, the vinaya, the structures, the conventions that we're uh, living in. And that's the value of it, to just, is not to, not, not a matter of, of uh, identifying with it, but using it for cultivation, for bhavana, for awareness, for liberation. And then over the years, this is, is such a, a powerful convention because it has lasted 2,500 and some years. So, you know, and it is, uh, so it is a convention that, that has managed to uh, survive through a long period of human history where, uh, you know, so many things have happened in 2,500 years in both Europe and Asia, Africa, wherever. And yet this one still, so we had this Upasampada yesterday with uh, ordaining uh, uh, Akaliko and Chandako and Aryo. It's like, this is, this is an ancient ceremony. And this is to bring this you know, what, were you just doing it for exotic reasons or <clears throat> because we, we love archaeology and antiquity? Or is it <laughs> are we just trying to be eccentric oddballs in a European country? Or is it, you know, there's a power in it that, that, uh, that we can intuitively connect with? That's why I've stayed uh, as a bhikkhu. And when I ordained, I, I determined only two years. Uh, two years is enough. You know, Americans, we think we, we, we can always learn everything in a short time. So I, I'll do it two years and then I'll go back to the States. And so, 44 years later, <laughs> it's... Uh, because within that two years, some, you know, there was an insight into this. It does work. And, and, it, and then the, my respect for this teaching has increased because it works all the time. You know, it's not just basic pri primary Buddhism, but it's, it's actually something that that has value for you, you know, keep referring to it because, uh, you know, not just to, to memorize it and keep it in your memory, but to apply it to suffering that you're experiencing in the present moment. So it's like keeping these, this Dhamma Jaka Pavatana Sutta in front of you 
you know, this is, you can, that's why it's good to memorize the actual Pali version. But, but also, you know, apply it, make it work so that it's not just uh, a kind of parrot-like recitation of, a, of, an, of an ancient uh, language. And that's what I call internalizing it. So they, this is this is this is how this be, in your conditioning yourself to get out of your cultural conditioning, egotistical conditioning, because that's what's so strong, isn't it? The sense of me and my view and my thoughts and what I look like and my life and so forth, my emotional habits. You know, that acquire these emotional habits, reactions to praise and blame, success and uh, failure, reactions to fear, anger, lust, greed, jealousy, anxiety, worry, confusion. These are all common to all of us, these emotions. But then the relationship changes from identifying with these emotions. They are what they are, but we're intuiting them. They are like this. So you, you're reflecting. And then the butty weight, the, the result of reflecting on the way it is, is insight. It's, 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 all conditions are impermanent. Sape sankarani cha, sape tama anatta. But trust the, this intuitive sense of, you know, willing to, to use the suffering that you're experiencing for bhavana, for cultivating the path. And of course we do forget to do it in moments we get carried away with the uh, problems uh, in the monastery, in the world, in the society, and that. But there's that point where you begin to see what you're doing. You know, you've got you've got wound up, caught up into something. That moment where you actually realize, you know, you you've lost it. That trust that moment. That's a moment worth putting your hands together, saying thank you, because you know then you can. It's like then it starts from there, from the here and now, from awareness, rather than from me trying to get rid of my kilesas and and then feeling uh, upset with myself for losing my temper when I shouldn't have or getting lost in my own emotions when I know better and, and all the self-condemnation, guilt and disparagement that the ego can, is very good at providing at any time, any place. Or that point where you suddenly catch yourself. And that's where, that's the point to, that's the, that's Buddha Dhamma Sangha at that moment. So then we can, why? And you can put our hands together, thank you, Sato. <laughs> And then go back to the moment, like the breath or the body, you know, 
use the reality, the heavy stuff, the obvious stuff like breathing or feeling, physical sensation, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. Or be aware of just emotional uh, lingering, the energy of emotions that linger and hang around for a while. Just in this attitude of observing, being the observer, being the Buddha, being this puto knowing Dhamma rather than this person with a problem. So it's, you know, and this is why it is up to each one of us that, no, that we can't do it for anyone else. But this is what we can do, you know, this is, this is, uh, you know, to save all sentient beings and straighten out all the political, economic problems of the world you know, you know, we might eventually be in a position where, you know, we might help, be able to help the world in many ways. But if we ha can't really do it ourselves, if we can't cultivate this deathless reality, this reality, then we have really, we're just caught in the samsara again, trying to rearrange the furniture. trying to solve the problems and the make and clean up the mess. But this way, it, it, the mess, the problems, are just the karma of being born, of this planetary life, of this species, of the way it is, that this realm is like this. It's about feeling and sensitivity. And that which is aware of feeling, And aware of sensitivity is wisdom, panya. Panya isn't unfeeling. It's not. Uh, you get the. This sounds too much like you get into this kind of <clears throat> what once was referred to as cold surgery. It's just impermanent, not self, ego. Get rid of it. That is not like that. It's not a callous indifference to the suffering and the problems uh, of the creatures around us. But it's where compassion can operate. It, it's where the Brahma-biharas can operate through these, these human forms. You know, so the, the metta, karuna, mudita, upeka, the, these four Brahma-biharas, then they, they, uh, they, they manifest through the consciousness of an individual human being when there isn't any self. I can't claim as a person uh, to have metta, karuna, mudita, upeka. Well, I can do it. <laughs> but on a personal level, for me to feel karuna and mudita sometimes is very difficult. Because the ego's not conditioned for that. The condition is, what about me? You know, how dare you insult me? <laughs> or, or, you know, it's about, you know, I know I should feel compassion for you, but and so on one level, your intellectual level, you get the idea, but emotionally, you're still caught in, in your emotional habits. And the only way to be free from that is not to suppress it or deny it nor reject it, but to understand it. The first noble truth, suffering, the causes of attachment, 
to condition. The third noble truth, the letting go. I mean, the second noble truth, the insight, letting go of attachment. To let go, you have to know what you're attached to. You can't just, you know, operate with some ideal of letting go. So it does require investigation, a close look, a willingness to suffer, a willingness to, to bear with life, no matter what, what its uh, condition might be in the present. Patient, forbearance, and then, then the insight, letting go. It happens, we see. There's no point in holding on and creating suffering over when you know better, when you have the, so you let go. And then the noble truth, third noble truth of the end, the cessation. When you let go, then the suffering will cease. Then you can be aware. Intuitive awareness allows us to, to realize, to know cessation. It's reality. It's not the suppression or, a, you know, distracting ourselves to something else. It's a, it's a profound understanding of non-attachment and non-self. It's not personal, it's not ego. And from the third noble truth, then there's samaditi, so that's the eightfold path, the fourth noble truth. And that's what bhavana is. And so we chanted this, the insight bhavana, to develop. Cultivate this samaditi throughout your life, wherever you are. You know, in, in when you're working or sitting down meditating or healthy, sickly, happy, sad, whatever, is to use the situation. It's all the path for us then, our life, what happens to these bodies, to us as individuals, our own karma, you know, whatever way it goes, uh, success or failure, praise or blame, whatever conditions we have to experience, it's still path for us through knowing, through understanding, through investigating, and then through trusting in this. The, in the, the ego doesn't trust anything. You know, it's, it's impossible for my ego to, to trust. It's very suspicious, skeptical ego. Cynical. So it, it, um, it can't be trusted. My ego, I don't trust one single bit. <clears throat> but this awareness, you know, the trust or the sada uh, is powerful now after all this time of practicing with it, investigating in this way. Then you have this sense of balance you have in the five faculties the indriyas, five indriyas, uh, sata, virya, sati, samadhi, panya. Yeah, this is the first teaching my upachaya gave me when I couldn't understand anything. And it had a Thai monk who could translate into English. So he had me, and I was at this monastery for the pantha, 
1966. And my upachaya came as a Tanjau Kun Tamabariyati Muni, who passed away a few years ago. He came and said, um, you know, the, uh, with this uh, monk, uh, Maha, uh, one of these Pali monks in his monastery, he could speak English. So he said, he was going to teach me my first teaching. And he said, Sata Virya Sati Samadhi Panya. So he said, repeat after me. Sata, and I said, Sata, Virya, Virya, Sati, Sati, Samadhi, Samadhi, Panya. I didn't know what the heck it meant. <laughs> but I did memorize it. And I, so I just used it as a mantra, you know. I, I just say, I didn't have anything else to do. Just sitting there, Sata, Virya, Sati, Samadhi, Panya, Sata, Virya, Sati. And then he, then he went on you know, a, a kind of explanation about panya and uh, sata and panya balance each other. Sata, because sata is the first one, panya is the last one, when you're chanting it in tandem like that. So it's sata, virya, sati, samadhi, panya. And he said sata and panya. And so, you know, in Panya, then, if there's not much Sandha, then you're more caught in your critical mind. People that have very critical mind, you know, oftentimes, you know, they, a certain level of, of wisdom or discrimination, anyway, that we might mistake for Panya. But it always leads to doubt or skepticism or some, some negative feeling. Then, uh, then he said the next two, uh, virya and samadhi, effort and concentration. And then, of course, the, the one in the middle is sati, mindfulness. Well, this, this is the first sermon of my upachaya. <laughs> and I, at Wat Nun Panau, 1966. And this was quite, you know, I've carried this, reflecting on this all these years. And now, you know, even though at the time I, I just memorized it like a parrot, and then I began to remember vague things like Panya, Sata, and Panya, Viriya, and Samadhi, Sati. I didn't. You know, sati was not part of my experience of life in that time. I didn't really understand it. But over the years, through insight, then they, this, uh, say the, the panya faculty was probably the ability to discriminate was strong. The skeptical mind, the discriminating intelligence was, was very active. The sada or confidence was minimal. It wasn't strong. But it was strong enough to put me in the robe anyway. I had enough sada to, to go through the motions of ordaining as a samanera and living in this kuti. And then, uh, so there was a level of sada. But the panya, the, the, or at that time, it was more like a discriminating critical faculty. And then over the years, through examining investigating these Four Noble Truths, 
then the effort and concentration begin to balance as you're mindful, more mindful. As mindfulness increases, uh, the effort or the you know, and concentration begin to find a balance with each other because at first it's too much effort, you're trying too hard and you can't concentrate very well. You know, you're pushing, forcing uh, and, and too much effort, you can't sustain, you can't get samadhi with it. But then, uh, and then samadhi was all the, the thing that everybody talked about, he's got samadhi. And I, I want to get samadhi. That's what you get praise for, if you've got samadhi. So I was trying to get samadhi through a lot of effort and couldn't manage. <laughs> but eventually, through trial and error and investigation, and then and through sati, as that began to resonate, sati mindfulness, you know, recognize that that this is the this is the way sati, and then the rest. <clears throat> begin to balance each other out. So now, like the 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 panya factory goes into discerning, because it's we have faith, we have this sada confidence in the path. So our ability to discern from the path becomes dominant. This is how we experience life through discernment, rather than through the critical mind. The the thinking mind, the ego level of life, the emotional experiences that we have. Ajahn Vajira said I could talk as long as I wanted. <laughs> so I'll stop here. <laughs>